If you were with us last Lord's Day evening, you'll remember that we were studying together what I called a picture portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were considering how the Beatitudes of Christ in Matthew 5, those words, those sentences that begin with blessed or oh, the happinesses of, are certainly representative not only of the character of a Christian, but of Christ himself. And obviously we would expect that if we are Christians and we're seeking to live for the Lord, we're going to be like Christ. And really, if the blessings of the Beatitudes are known in our lives, then that means that we are becoming like Christ. Christ himself is represented, as far as his character is concerned, in these various Beatitudes. I don't want to go over all that ground again, but if you listened to last week's message, if you weren't here and weren't able to access it, you'll know that the Beatitudes set forth the great virtues of our Lord Jesus Christ. But from dealing with that, I want us to go on to look at another aspect of this. These great virtues also can be described as his great victory. The portion here deals with the success of our Lord's atoning work. Now, as good Calvinists, we believe that the work of Christ is not, in any sense, a failure. There are none for whom the Savior shed his blood and paid the price who will ever be in hell. Every single one that he died for, that he atoned for, will be in glory. That's the teaching of the Word of God. None of the shedding of his blood was wasted. But every drop of that blood that was shed is atoning blood, and it will atone. And it will save those who are his elect. So the tremendous success of the atoning work of Christ, which is found in various portions of Scripture, is also reflected in the Beatitudes. We think about the blessings that the Lord announces here. Blessed are they that mourn, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake, and so on. All of these blessings that we enjoy are purchased and procured for us by the atoning work of Christ. Now look at the first beatitude and look at the last beatitude. The first one mentions the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and obviously it's talking about spiritual poverty, and those who recognize that poverty and come to the Lord to meet their need out of the riches of His grace. The Bible tells us that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But look at the final beatitude. And you'll see there that it also mentions heaven. In verse 11 and verse 12, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. In other words, what they do to me, they will do to you. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in 
heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So here we have mention made of heaven. And it's true to say that heaven and all the blessings of heaven are merited for us. They're bought for us by Christ. They are part of his successful work. Now notice each beatitude in turn. If we consider the first three. Verse 3, verse 4 and verse 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In these we see that Christ rules as the sovereign. Christ rules as the sovereign. How do we get that? Well, because the Lord is the king. And that's mentioned really, at least it's hinted at in verse 3, the kingdom of heaven. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And the kingdom is the Lord's. He is our covenant head. And he has obtained all these blessings for us as his people. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he put it this way. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 1. I'm becoming dyslexic. It's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You'll notice the word places is in italics. It's also seen in chapter 2 the same way, where it mentions in verse 6, He's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You could say in heavenly things. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly things or in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now in the first three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit and so on, it speaks of the humiliation and the lowliness of Christ. But that's only in the first part of each Beatitude. You see that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. There you have poverty. There you have mourning. There you have meekness. But notice the second part of each beatitude. There's a kingdom. And there's comfort. And there's an inheritance. The kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. And so the kingship of Christ is really a theme here. Our Lord is the king of heaven and earth. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, verse 5 says, For they shall inherit the earth. So the Lord is the king of both heaven and earth. Now there are various references to our Lord in the Bible and his kingship. For instance... In Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, those that are in glory with the harps are singing a song. And they sing, it says, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou 
king of saints. That's a good description there, king of saints. Now go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 4, in verse number 37, we have the words of the king Nebuchadnezzar who has been humbled by the Lord. Now he was a king, he was an earthly king, he was a very strong and powerful king, he was a despot, whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive. But the Lord humbled him, and he said this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. The King of heaven. Thy King of saints. Now notice the title, but also compare the context here in the book of Daniel. In the 25th verse, At the end of that verse, it says, Seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. You see the same thought in verse 32. Seven times shall pass over thee, halfway through the verse, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And also verse 35 and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So he's the king of heaven, but he's also the king of earth. He is in control. But he's also the king of glory. And in that beautiful Psalm 24, He is described as such. You have the Lord in His coming uh, that is foreshadowed here. And it speaks of the fact that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Here's the Lord's sovereignty over the earth. But in the closing verses, notice how He is described. From verse 7, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Thou King of saints. The King who rules in the kingdoms of men and in the armies of heaven. The King of glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the center of worship in heaven. And there he is worshipped as the King. When the Lord came into the earth, he came in a lowly form of a slave. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But you think of the poverty of Christ. In humiliation he came, but now he's exalted to the throne. The highest place that heaven affords is his, by sovereign right. When we pray, don't we pray at the end of the Lord's Prayer? For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. His is the kingdom, but we as believers inherit that kingdom in him. We have a great inheritance. You may not have much this side of heaven, 
You may just have enough to get by. But that's all right. If you've got this great hope in your heart, 1 Peter 1 verse 4, it speaks of the lively hope it is to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's better than any earthly inheritance. Because it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. And it fadeth not away. The hope of every Christian is that we shall reign with him in glory. But he also rules sovereignly in the earth. And so the third beatitude comes into play. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We inherit the earth because it is his inheritance. His people are the inheritance of Christ. And right now, at this time, he is saving them out of every tribe and kindred and nation. Some people like to talk about the future reign of Christ, and that's all right, but he reigns over earth now. And he will yet reign, according to Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 15. There the Bible says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He's the king. Christ rules as the sovereign. He is sovereign. But the question that men and women have to answer is, does he reign over my life? Can you sing with other believers, King of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. Have you bowed the knee to the King? Is he your King? Have you crowned him Lord of all? Christ rules as the sovereign. But again, we can see in the Beatitudes the great victory of Christ in that Christ is risen as the suppliant. Now what is a suppliant? It's one who supplicates. It's one who prays. Our Lord is on a throne because he is a king. It speaks here of the kingdom of heaven. But he is also a priest. And as we study the book of Hebrews, for instance, we, we see the priesthood of our Lord Mentioned there, it's spoken of a lot in that book. For instance, in chapter 7, it refers to Melchizedek, who is the great type of Christ, at least. In my view, he is a Christophany in the Old Testament, a pre-appearance of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. But you notice how he is described, a king of righteousness and king of peace. One made like unto the Son of God, who abideth a priest continually. Then in chapter 8 of Hebrews verse 1, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is a priest on a throne. Now that's a very unique combination. 
Because you find in the Old Testament priests, and you find their kings, but you don't find a combination of the two. Those who were priests and kings. But as we look at the Beatitudes, and the next three that are in order in chapter 5 of Matthew, they actually refer to the rewards of satisfaction, of obtaining mercy, and of seeing God. Now think of those three things. It says, and I quote Matthew chapter 5, and verse number 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That means they shall be satisfied. So there's the first thing. There's satisfaction. They're filled. Then, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And then the promise of verse 8 is, For the pure in heart, they shall see God. So you take those three together. They shall be filled. That's satisfaction. They shall obtain mercy. And they shall see God. I believe that we have pictured here the present ministry of Christ in glory. Because when you consider it, the Lord Jesus has in life on this earth and by his death accomplished all that he set out to do. We learn this from Isaiah chapter 53. It talks there about the satisfaction of Christ. Again, think of this. They shall be filled or satisfied. Isaiah 53 verse 11. It says of Christ, and of course it is in connection with his sufferings and his atoning work. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be disappointed. No! He shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So he died for them, and therefore he will obtain for them justification. And in that he is satisfied. He is filled. And we might say he is as one whose hunger and thirst have been satisfied. Do you think we're going to find that the Lord will be in glory, but eternally disappointed because he was unable to achieve what he wanted to achieve? He set out to save every last person who ever existed, and he failed in that design. Now that's what some men preach. In fact, one man who got carried away in preaching, an Arminian preacher who was quoted once, I think it was by Pink, was heard to say in the pulpit, Poor God. Poor God. He would save men, but they won't let him. And I remember the preacher commenting on that, said that that was bordering on blasphemy. And I agree with that. Is the Lord going to be in glory, wringing his hands in defeat, wishing that he could have achieved what he set out to achieve, but failed? A frustrated Christ. I want to tell you, that is not what the Bible teaches. There is not, and there never will be, any frustration in God. 
no disappointment in his own work. In fact, the Lord said about Christ, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I would include within that his work, as well as his person. I do always those things that please him, the Savior said. And just as it was in the old creation, what did the Lord say when he created everything? Well, he saw that it was very good. Look at the very first page of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. A satisfied God. A God who was content with his work. And that is what we may say about the new creation. The Lord Jesus is satisfied with his work. Because he has obtained and will obtain all that he set out to do. But also he obtained mercy. The Beatitude speaks of this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Our Lord Jesus obtained mercy, but not for himself. He obtained mercy for us as our covenant head. We have mercy that has been shown to us from the Lord because of Christ. Look at Psalm 68 and verse 18. <clears throat> thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. It means a whole train of captives have been led by the Lord as our leader. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. He has received gifts for men. We have mercy from the Lord through Christ. But also we note in the Beatitude, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's found in verse number 8 of Matthew 5. They shall see God. Isn't that true of Christ? He's now in glory. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's risen. He's ascended. And Hebrews tells us he now appears in the presence of God for us. He's there before the Father's face. As our advocate. As our attorney, as we pointed out last time from 1 John chapter 2. Let me read to you what it says about our great high priest in Hebrews 4 from verse 15. For we have not, that means we have, an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It means that we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It just uses the negative here. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted or tested like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain, what? Mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. He sees God. And every believer will see God because Christ now appears in the presence of God for them. 
Hebrews 9 verse 24 records it. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Can you see it tonight? The Son of God, the same one who walked this earth, now in His glorified state, He's right there before God, appearing for us before the Father's face. And the hope of every Christian is that he will also see God, what we call the beatific vision. Because Christ now pleads his own merit before God for that believer, we're going to enter into heaven because he has entered in for us as our forerunner. He's prepared the way. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 tells us about that. We have a hope that is as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and was entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered. That's a great title of Christ, the forerunner. Even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's gone in ahead of us to prepare the way for us. And this shall I find, for such is his mind. He'll not be in glory and leave us behind. Wonderful thought that Christ is risen as the suppliant. But we see as well in the Beatitudes that Christ is recognized as the Son. Matthew 5 verse 9 records, Blessed are the peacemakers, For they shall be called the children of God, or the sons of God, if you like. Now, as we said of God's people, they're shown to be God's own sons by this characteristic. This is not what makes you a child of God. This is what is the evidence that you are a child of God. Let's get it straight. It doesn't say, blessed are the peacemakers, for thereby they shall become the children of God. No. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's how they're recognized. Because of this characteristic. Peacemaking. They're shown to be God's own children by this characteristic. And the Lord Jesus is owned and openly recognized by God the Father as his well-beloved son on account of his atoning work. And what is that work? It's a work of peacemaking. The work of Christ at Calvary is a work of peacemaking. Now this is what God declared by the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 refers to it in verse 4. And declared... To be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be the Son. The Father points to him and says, this is my Son. He is my beloved Son. And I accept his work. That's what Romans 1, 4 teaches in the resurrection. There's evidence that God has accepted the work of His Son. That's how we know that the atonement really atones. 
That's how we know that the cross work was accepted in heaven. Because Jesus was brought from the dead by the Father on account of that. He raised him up. His work is accepted in heaven. And now God virtually says, I own him as my son. And you and I can only be called the sons of God. We can only be called the children of God because he has been declared the son of God. By the way, isn't it interesting that that's what they cast doubt upon at the cross? If you read the closing verses of the Gospels, in each case there's those who are mocking the Lord on the cross and they're saying, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. If. They didn't believe that he was. And that's the same language that was used by Satan in Matthew chapter 4 in the temptations of Christ. Remember what he said to Jesus? If thou be the Son of God, command these stones that they be made bread. It was a challenge. It was casting doubt, I believe. Casting doubt on the sonship of Christ. And by the way, the devil will do the same thing to every child of God, every true son of God in that sense. He will cast doubt on your sonship. He loves to cause God's people to feel that they're not really saved at all, if thou be the Son of God. But we can be called the sons of God because he has openly been declared the Son of God. God has openly shown him to be the true and only Saviour. He has risen. He's brought him from the grave. He is who he said he was. He claimed to be the Son of God. That claim was put to the test and verified by his resurrection. And God is satisfied with his atoning work. Why then would I not be satisfied with that same work? Blessed are the peacemakers. We pointed this out as a characteristic of Christ last time. That he made peace by the blood of his cross. He is our peace. He has reconciled us to God by his death. So Christ is recognized as the Son Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then, Christ is rewarded as the sufferer. He's shown to be one who suffers persecution. Now notice again the words from verse 10 to verse 12 of Matthew 5. You have here two blesseds, two beatitudes. Blessed are they, there you have it in the third person as it were, which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's a general statement for all believers. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not for foolishness' sake, not for the sake of their sins or their stupidity, but for righteousness, for doing what is right. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he makes it more personal. Blessed are ye. And who's he talking to? Verse 1 identifies his disciples who came unto him. So he speaks to these men in particular, and he says, Blessed are ye, O the happiness of you, when men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Now look at those three things, and Christ himself suffered all of that. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He was persecuted and hounded unto death. 
And they said all manner of evil against him falsely. They accused him of all manner of things that were not true. But then he says, this is something that you will experience. And you'll get the blessing of that when it's happening for my sake. Because of your association with Jesus Christ. They're saying all manner of evil against you falsely. They're reviling you. They're persecuting you. They're doing it for my sake. Here's what you're to do. Verse 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Don't be going and sitting in the corner pouting and wishing it wasn't like that and complaining that the world hates you. No. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Why should it be any different for you in your day than it was for God's people in other days? Just look at your church history books. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read about what happened to the Covenanters in Scotland. Read about the various pogroms that were carried out against Christians at the time of Chairman Mao in China. The people who were put to death Christians and put into prison. Those who died under the regime of the former Soviet Union, under Stalin and men of that kind. The terrible things that have happened to God's people throughout the ages go back further than that to the time of the Roman emperors. Nero hounded Christians, put them in dungeons, Under the city of Rome there are still remnants of the catacombs, underground tunnels. There are drawings and various things there that relate to the Bible. Where people were relating Bible stories through drawings. Christians who were kept incarcerated in such places. Brought out by Nero, for example having their bodies covered in oil or some kind of a substance, then set alight so that they could enlighten the gardens that he owned. Terrible things that happened to God's people. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. But there's a blessing for such. They're to rejoice in those circumstances because there's a great reward in heaven. This is not the end. There is reward for suffering. Now let's apply that to Christ. In relation to the Lord's great work of redemption. It is as if the Father said to him, to Christ, Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. What is his reward? We are. Believers are. We are the fruit of his Suffering. The corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies. But then it brings forth a great harvest. Christ is the firstfruits. Afterward they that are Christ at his coming. His people are the fruit of his sufferings. Notice what Paul wrote about that in Hebrews chapter 2. In verse number 13. And again I will put my trust in him. This is quotations from the Old Testament. And again, behold I and the children which God 
hath given me. That's a quotation from the Old Testament prophet. Look, behold I and the children which God hath given me. This is Christ. The Lord has made heaven sure for us and for all his people. They will all be there as the reward of his suffering. I have no doubt about that. John chapter 6 and verse 39 records the words of Jesus himself in this regard. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Every elect soul given to Christ in the great covenant of redemption, in the covenant of grace, in eternity. Every last one, he says, I'm going to lose none, and I will raise it up again at the last day. What a wonderful promise. They'll all be there. Every single child of God will make it. And I don't know about you, but for me, for me, it's a staggering thought that Christ will see me in glory as the reward of his work. Because as Isaiah 53 puts it, we are his seed. He shall see his seed. He saw us at Calvary. Preacher, are you telling me that at Calvary's cross, it was so individual that when Jesus was hanging there on the tree, suffering for sins, he realized and thought about the fact that he was suffering for me as an individual. And I say, yes, absolutely yes to that. I was on his mind. And if you're a child of God tonight, you were on his mind. Is that not an amazing thing? Isn't that what Paul meant when he said... There in writing to the church, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how individual it is. Now, we could read a scripture like that. We could pass over it very, very easily without thinking about the import of it. But just stop to think about that for a minute. What are you saying, Paul? The Son of God who loved us Well, that's true. Romans tells us he died for us. Christ died for us. Or Christ died for the ungodly. Or as it is in Ephesians chapter 5. He loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the collective body. That's the corporate whole. But Paul goes further and he says, The Son of God who loved me. He loved me. And gave himself For me, I am the reward of his work. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. I know I'm an old doting grandfather now. I talk a lot about my grandkids. I love them to death. And so would you if they were yours. And those of you who are grandparents, you know what I'm talking about. But I love it when I get the little ones together and get them to sing that simple little chorus. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. 
And I want them to think about that. And I want them to grasp that. And I want them to have the assurance of that for themselves, each and every one individually. Jesus doesn't just love us and all His people, but Jesus loves me. You know what that means? If you'd been the only sinner on the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus would have come from heaven. He would have lived your life for you, a life of righteousness. He would have put up with all that He put up with at the hands of men, and He would have gone to that cruel cross, and He would have died for you. If you'd been the only sinner who ever existed. That's how amazing it is. What a thought it is. That we are his seed. Christ will see me in glory as the reward of his work. Behold I and the children whom thou hast given me. These are the fruit of my sufferings. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. There is a rejoicing in the heart of Christ. In the thought that he has saved his people. He saw us at Calvary. And he will see us eternally. Now notice, before we finish, the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul was a a man with a pastor's heart. He loved the people of God. And we're commanded to love one another. And Paul did love God's people. And he loved the Thessalonians among all of the Lord's people. He loved the Colossians. He loved the Ephesians. He loved all those people that he ministered to and was used of God in saying converted. But notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. He's talking about people who were brought to faith in Christ under his ministry. And he said, you're my joy. You're my boast. In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, you will be my hope, my joy, and my crown of rejoicing. Will there be any stars in my crown? Well, these people were stars in Paul's crown. But what was true of Paul as a pastor is even more true of the Savior. Because we are his joy and his crown. We are his jewels. We're called in Scripture along with Israel his peculiar treasure. Notice how he tells us through the prophet that we will be his jewels in the day of his coming. There's a little song that speaks of that. When he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, all the pure ones, all the bright ones, his loved and his own, like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning, they shall dwell in his beauty bright gems for his crown think about that we're the Lord's jewels Malachi 3 verse 19 and they shall be mine saith the Lord of hosts 
In the day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. It's good to be saved. It's good to be loved of God and to be one who loves God. May that be the assurance of each and every one. Amen.